Judy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to interesting people about the books they find interesting. This month is another book swap, and it's also part two in my series celebrating one of my favorite authors and my favorite fictional detective, Dorothy L. Sayers, and her unforgettable creation, Lord Peter Whimsey. This year, 2023, is kind of Lord Peter's 100th anniversary since the first Lord Peter Whimsey novel, Whose Body, appeared in 1923. In last month's episode, I got Emma to swap that book with me, got her to read it, and compare it to a contemporary mystery that she recommended, the um, Truly Devious series by Maureen Johnson. This month, I'm back with another book swap and another one of my talented relatives, writer and visual artist Jennifer Morgan. And she and I sat down with one of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels that I'd recommended to her and the book that she recommended, which is by a contemporary writer out fairly recently, but set in the same time period as the Lord Peter novels and sharing... Um, I would say these two novels share some striking similarities as well as some striking differences. And so we're going to jump right into that conversation now. So, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, So the book that I asked you to read uh, for my Lord Peter Whimsy um, series of podcasts was... Murder Must Advertise by Dorothy L. Sayers. Yes, which is one of the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries. I think it occurs sort of in the middle or a little past the middle of the series. Um, so it's, I guess I would consider it one of the later ones. And you had not read any of these before? No, I have This is the first Lord Peter Whimsey mystery I have ever read. But you are an avid mystery reader. I think of you as someone who reads a lot of mysteries. Certainly lately, yes. The last, well, you know, yeah, five to six years, I think I really dove deep into them once Trump got into power, so since 2016. Now, that is an interesting connection. What what do you think it is about Trump coming to power that made you want to read mysteries? The thing that bothered me the most about Trump, especially after the pussy incident, you know, uh, the, the, the very demeaning words, was this was a man who never had to live with the consequences of his behavior. Mm, And the beauty of murder mysteries is that there is always justice at the end. Yes. Sometimes it's a rough justice, Mm -hmm. uh, as in this one, actually, outside of the legal system. But murder mysteries rest on rule of law in some cases, but, but the fact, not rule of law, the fact that justice, bad people are punished, the consequences of their behavior, in the end, they are not as good off as they were at the beginning. Yes, yeah. People do have to suffer the consequences of their actions one way or another. And I think, I, like, I've heard that theory before, that in times of a lot of social stress and uncertainty, people love to read mysteries because they want to see a world where there's clear-cut good and evil and good prevails and evil is punished. As it's it's kind of, uh, it's it's my holiday reading, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And it was, then I did a deep dive in the pandemic. Uh-huh. I mean, there was a point in the pandemic very early on when I had to get up and leave the room when Trump was on on TV. Oh, yeah, that's very music cast When he was being quoted or anything like that because I simply could not hear that man's voice. And that was the point at which I was uh, going to my studio and listening to a, a murder mystery series, and I had started 
from book one mm-hmm. and just avidly listen to it. And I can look at the woodblock engraving that I was working on uh-huh. and remember the atmosphere of the Gemma Kincaid and the relationship. You really also, it's like sitcoms. You develop in series of mm-hmm. murder mysteries like you have with um, Lord Peter Whimsey. You develop a relationship with yes. the characters. Yes, yeah. And so the, you have this lovely puzzle to figure mm-hmm. out and you know that it's going to be resolved. But you're going back sometimes to visit these people. Like, uh, you know, I feel very much that way with the Three Pines murder. Yes, yeah, the Louise Penny, Penny Inspector Gamache ones. Yeah. yeah. I think, And I think a lot of people have that experience with those that Three Pines is just a place they want to keep coming back to and, and revisiting those characters. Yeah, it's this lovely neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. More so even maybe than solving the mystery. You know, I want to go over and have, you know, a, a croissant at this cafe. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. Whatever is cafe. Yes. You know, yeah. yeah. You know, so it's really a chance to go back and visit familiar friends. You know, you have still have a mental challenge in that the mystery is a puzzle you're figuring out. And you're trying to figure out how the detectives will figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's almost always light reading. With the exception, when Uh you start getting bored, of innovative new crime writers like Kate Atkinson. Yes. Right? So we'll we'll say the Mm -hmm. second book that we read, um, I guess it wasn't as traditional a book swap as I usually do, because this was a book that we had both read and enjoyed, uh, was Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. Yes. uh, Which is, I don't know, would you call that a mystery? Would you call this book a mystery? I would call Shrines of Gaiety um, a... uh, a, a novel about a crime boss mm, yes. who happens to be female. Yes, yeah. It's right? a crime novel. It's maybe not, it hasn't had the traditional yes. structure of a mystery, but it is a crime novel. It's kind of like The Godfather written by a feminist. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's a female revisionist Godfather yes. set in London. Mm-hmm. Now, right? it's interesting because Kate Atkinson has also written much more traditional mysteries with yes. the Jackson Brody books, which you've read Which those. I love. Yeah. I absolutely love. And I keep returning to. Do you? Yes. I've read them all once, but I've never... I haven't had the urge to reread them. And I will say, with the last one, I had gotten to the point... Jackson Brody is one of, and Lord Peter Whimsey very much is not, but a very... Um, I think a real common stereotype in mysteries yes. is the jaded, yes. cynical man who yeah. is like, you know... And all of his personal relationships are bad. Yes, yeah. He has no positive relationships with anybody. And yet he few. himself is very likable. Yes, yeah. Some of these main character jaded men, uh, you know, the sort of Frost, you know, yeah. de- uh, character, you know, like Morse, you know, uh, who I actually like in the... I haven't read the novels, but I, I like him in the TV series. But I don't. Some of them are not likable. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he he really is, and he's always beating himself yes. up. Yes. And I think that's what mm. with Jackson Brody. I found him likable, mm. but I also wanted to shake him by about four books in, and like, man, <laughs> just take a break from solving these mysteries and get your personal life straightened out. Do some mm. work on yourself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it's Kate Atkinson, who I think is a writer we have both enjoyed a lot, yeah. has written uh, a series of mysteries. Uh, but this, yeah, this one is a bit different. It's a standalone, it's a historical, mm-hmm. um, and it is, uh, it is, while it's not traditionally a mystery, it is definitely concerned with crime. And I'll say that the reason I thought these two were a good swap when, uh, was that uh, when you, you said you would be interested in doing one of the Lord Peter ones with me, and we also mentioned the Kate Atkinson book, um, 
I thought it was really interesting mix with Murder Must Advertise because both of them are set in the 1920s and about this sort of London underworld of crime and drugs. Yes. But one is a writer of that period writing about it, and the other is a historical fiction writer almost 100 years later trying to recreate it. And I always think it's interesting to look at the difference between how a writer writes about a thing in their own time and how someone writes about the same yes. sort of world in, in right, trying to write it in historical and, fiction. And, and it's, it is an interesting contrast, yes. right? Um, by the way, this is the Nellie Coker is the main the, the drug boss. Mm-hmm. I, I hesitate to say main figure because it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of main characters in that novel. A lot she's of a point major of view character, yeah. you know, and it's really about her empire and how she holds on to it. But she is based on Kate Atkinson has included a, a clip from a newspaper mm-hmm. at the end describing Dr. Merrick at wife's funeral reconciled, breaks down at graveside, and this is a complete, you know, uh, copy of this article, which is too small for me to read at the moment. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, so she's based on a historical character uh-huh. who did ri- run these uh, d- cocktail bars, uh, sort mm-hmm. of speakeasies. Dens of iniquity. Uh, Dens of iniquity uh-huh. uh, in London's uh, square mile of evil, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and was a mother, and it is it is fascinating to look at her. I say the godmother because it's really she's building a family dynasty, mm-hmm. you know. And that's uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I can see why Kate Atkinson would be fascinated. Oh by yeah, her. yeah. It's a fascinating yeah. world, and I think both these books, both the the really the genuinely written in that time and the historical recreation, are interesting because I think we tend to when we think about the 1920s you know, the Roaring Twenties, I think we have this very, you know, an image of it as being a wild time, but a wild time in a very sanitized way, like people are drinking bathtub gin and having dance marathons, but the amount of cocaine in both these books, the amount of, I mean, they are crime novels, but the amount of death and and the, uh, you know, one of the main plot points of Shrines of Gaiety turns on young women going missing and murdered, yes. missing and murdered young women in the city. Yeah, I, it's it's definitely a seamier picture of the 1920s than I think we get in a lot of uh, a lot of images of that time. Yeah, the drugs in particular. I'm trying to think if Dorothy Say- Sayers if hers is a little more sanitized. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's sanitized in the sense that I think she couldn't have written as honestly about what was going on in her time because it wouldn't have been considered acceptable in polite, you know, light, light-hearted detective fiction. Um, she always refers to dope. Yes. Uh, but it's, the, the drugs are always called dope, but it's clearly cocaine. And it's about, you know, uh, uh, trying to bust a ring of, of cocaine smugglers and, and, and sellers. Which is a plot point we think of as, like, TV police pursuit scenes yes. of the 1970s Exactly, and yeah. And it's yes. surprising to come across it in both these books. You know, yes. there are sort of drug smuggling and drug selling rings in the 1920s. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that again I did find out But definitely... Although the underworld is obviously very gritty, I don't think Dorothy Sayers had the freedom to write about it in as gritty a way as uh, 
as as Kate Atkinson does. We should pause for a moment, I guess, and do a bit of a plot recap of each yes. of them. Okay. Which of these books would you like to attempt to do a quick, very quick plot okay, recap? Okay, so I, I kind of uh, mentally uh, prepared uh, a little for the Shrines of Gaiety. Okay, great. And I can okay. definitely do Murder Must Advertise. Okay, uh, so Nellie Coker is led out of jail uh, on the first page. And we see her returning after a six months imprisonment to her empire. We meet her children and we see her confront throughout the book the individuals who are trying to usurp her. Mm -hmm. A shadowy character named Azo Party, mm -hmm. a policeman named John Frobisher who is determined to save the young women from, young girls from this evil temptress, and uh, officers who we never really get to know, but uh, other police officers who are trying to work both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of corrupt officers, right? Yeah, corrupt officers, and one of whom is pro we, we feel is probably trying to take over her business mm -hmm. the way she took over her partner's business right, and right. when she got in. Her first partner was this man named Jagger, mm -hmm. and she kept the corrupt officer Maddox. And then, you know, now Maddox wants to do the same to her. Right, yeah. So that's kind of the main plot point. But throughout it, we are following two little girls who have, teenage girls, mm -hmm. adolescents who have run away from home. Yes, yeah. And that's Frida and Flora. Flora. Florence? Florence. Florence, yeah. Frida and Florence. And then we also have a citizen detective yes, yeah. who shows up, a librarian who has come into money, and that's Gwendolyn Kelling. Mm -hmm. And so Gwendolyn is, you know, like she's in that role that we usually ascribe to the citizen detective who's going to solve the whole mystery. Yeah. And in fact, it doesn't transpire in the traditional mystery role. And what we see instead is how um, how Nellie Coker managed to maintain her reins of control. Mm -hmm. But we do also follow the fortunes of these two girls. Mm. And in the end, and I really appreciate this, she, uh, Kate Atkinson, just gives you a sort of future recap yes, of the yeah. major point of view characters. Yeah, and we'll get to that at the end when we talk about the ending because I think that's yeah. really interesting how she does. But the this is of this not novel. a murder mystery. No, it's not a murder mystery. Although there, there are bodies. murders in it, there are bodies. Bodies are all over the, the this. Yes, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll talk about talk about the ending and the bodies. That's a very good recap. So that's a novel set in the 1920s London uh, by a writer of today writing it as historical fiction. And then Murder Must Advertised by Dorothy L. Sayers. I, I've got the windows open because it's so warm in here and we can hear, as we always can outside my house, police sirens going by seemingly endlessly. Uh, and normally I'd say we should, you know, cut out the background sound, but it seems kind of appropriate to have sirens in the background yeah, as we talk about crime so you know you may hear sirens from time to time I didn't add those as an effect that's not added in post so Murder Must Advertise is one of the series of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels and we talked about the, those a bit in the last episode when I got Emma to read the first of the Lord Peter Whimsey books this is one that comes later in the series and when it starts out Lord Peter Whimsey doesn't appear as himself he appears in disguise he's going undercover he's using his two middle names Deeth Breeden Deeth spelled death but pronounced Deeth and 
he is uh, coming in as a new employee in an advertising agency. And one of the things I love about this book is the entire world of the ad agency, mm. the 1920s ad agency, which Sayers knew really well because she had worked, she, I think, basically is Miss Metyard in this story. She was an Oxford-educated woman who worked in a mostly male environment in, in an advertising agency. And... Lord Peter has been called in here undercover because there has been a mysterious death in the advertising agency. A man named Victor Dean has died by falling down a huge staircase in the building, big spiral staircase, and it is suspected that foul play was at work, that he did not just trip and fall. And the head of the agency has brought Lord Peter in but asked him to be very quiet about it and not to do anything that would, you know, draw any attention or draw any bad publicity, but try to find out what really happened to Victor Dean. And Lord Peter quickly figures out not only he's quite sure Victor Dean was murdered, but he also starts to suspect that his death had something to do with this entire underworld of crime and drugs in, you know, high London society, which is very far removed from the state and sedate world of the advertising agency. But we do eventually find out there's a link. We'll talk about it after the spoiler warning. Uh, but it does lead very directly. So he spends a lot of time when he's not undercover in the advertising agency. He's also kind of undercover investigating and going to these very, very decadent parties with these uh, spoiled rich people who are just frittering, frittering away their their time and money on drugs and what seemed to be implied to be maybe orgies but again I don't think Sayers could write about that very honestly so um, yeah so eventually he solves a mystery with the help of his uh, policeman friend Parker they bust the drug ring Parker's men bust the drug ring there are a couple of incidental more murders along the way at least two more people end up dead and Lord Peter does solve the mystery of who killed Victor Dean and why and yes. that's, yeah, that's, that's that one. So I guess what I wanted to ask you uh, was, well, a lot of things, but what did you think of the of Murder Must Advertise is probably the, the first one that, like, how, how did it strike you as a, as a mystery and as a reading experience? I had a hard time getting into it, and mm -hmm. I think it was because I was jumping into the middle. Yes. And there are a lot of assumptions. Yes. Uh, you know, so, like, you know, Lord Peter Wimsey, really came across as kind of a cold fish. Mm -hmm. I think he often does, though, in, in the books okay, sometimes. Okay, so yeah. I, th I think that's why I may have started a few, but never mm -hmm. never really stayed on. Dorothy Saviors, you know, fairly early on, like in their conversation, they kind of compare him to a Bertie Wooster kind of character. Yes, yeah. But he's not anything like Bertie Wooster, you know, the character Lord Peter Not Winfrey. so much in this book. I think he is in the in the earlier books. Okay. Uh, a lot of that, you know, and of course he's not appearing as himself, but he he does still have that uh, sort of upper class twit of the year kind of persona. But I don't think it comes here. I did say this was an odd one to read yeah. if you hadn't read any Lord Peter Wimsey because he's not being himself for so much of the book. Yeah, and that does it does make it harder, I think, to get into the character. But it was to me, it was irresistible to try to compare it with uh, yes, Shrines of Gaiety because the, of the setting. Yeah, and there's and there's some. You know, really, uh, there's some crossovers. Yes, a so lot of them. I took what notes. are some of the crossovers you noted? I love, I, I love when notes. somebody brings in a book with post-it notes. The language is mm. one of the things that's a strong similarity. And murder must advertise. The slang is so dense. There's large parts I just had to reread, and sometimes just didn't know what I, they were saying. What yeah, they were yeah. saying. And I think, again, to me, that's the difference between a writer writing in their own time, 
because a historical fiction writer is always trying to give you a sense of the language or the slang or the jargon of the time, but still make it comprehensible to modern readers, which obviously Dorothy Sayers is not doing. She's just writing the way she thought her characters would have talked. And it is very dense with jargon and slang and allusions and references to things that would have made sense to her readers, but maybe don't to us. Yeah, and the closest um, Kate Atkinson has to somebody speaking that way, I think Kate Atkinson is more literary verity, right? Dorothy Sayers is really playing with language all the way through. Oh, yes. And like P.G. Woodhouse, she has them saying these really ridiculously combined uh, sentences that are designed to be... You know, very clever. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, like, to make the reader laugh or, or catch yes. your attention rather than to mimic necessarily always re- real speech. Re- yeah. Reality. And, and uh, Kate Atkinson really is trying to capture reality. So she has, for that kind of language, she almost has it exclusively reserved for the two middle sisters, Betty and Shirley. Yes, yeah, because okay. they do do a lot of and 1920s they do, and they say these things, you know, but whenever they do... The other one, you know, when Shirley gives a bon mot, then Betty says, nice. <laughs> or when Shirley does it, then Betty, you know, Betty will, will compliment mm-hmm. her, right? Yeah. yeah. They're very much the flappers. They are, of, of, yes. Uh, of Shrines of Gaiety. And I guess if there's a flapper in Murder Must Advertise, it's poor Diane de Montmory, who is the, yes. the young woman who's caught up in, yes. the, in the parties and the drug scene and everything and comes to a bad end. Both both books reference bright young things. Yes, yes, that's right. They and do. so Di- Diane de Moray in, in in Kate Atkinson's story. No, she's no, she's the one, one. In, in Murder Must Advertise. In Murder Must Advertise, she is a bright young thing. Yes, yeah. right. But in Shrines of Gaiety, Ramsey gets invited to the parties by the bright young. Oh things. yes, yes, that's right. And Shirley and and Betty would like to be invited, but they don't believe in the you know they yes, denigrate yeah. the bright young things, which is a pure sign that they are really very envious and would like to think of themselves as bright young things, but they unfortunately are on the outside. I feel like the party that Ramsey gets invited to that has a real nightmarish quality yeah. feels like it could be one of the parties that Lord Peter is infiltrating, one of the parties yes. that Diane. Mar- De Montmorey and Todd Milligan are at in, in Murder Must Advertise. So that's the sort of where I feel like the books are occupying the same world. They really are. These ridiculous Yes, yeah. You know, you have mummies. Yes, yeah. Right? People dress, uh, dressed in ridiculous dressed, dressed costumes. In, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Pierrot shows up uh, in, in Shrines of Ga- Gaiety, the Kate Atkinson book. But in both of them, they have. Yeah, because in Murder Must Advertise, that's Lord Peter's disguise when he goes he's, to the fancy dress party. As a he's the Harlequin, yeah. Right? You know, and I think uh, there was a uh, you know mummy murder at that t- in that time period. I think that is. I know there was the, the huge fascination with mummies because this is around King Tut and the the Egyptian discovery. And, and then right? this is brought out by Kate Atkinson. She gives you this context. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and the little girls are you know like not they don't get they don't get this yeah, this fascination yeah. with and why they would make a. a why? Why Nellie Coker would make a bar? Well, that's right. She does like, like an Egyptian-themed bar. The yes, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, so it's very know, much it's that, a, that reflection of the fascination with, uh, with, with the exotic, the culture of the exotic. 
The thing that I thought was really with Dorothy Sayer is her observations on class. Yes. And her uh, very trenchant observations on advertising. Yes. Yeah. Both of those are really interesting. Which do we want to talk about first, class or advertising? Let's talk about class. Okay. Right? And we can talk about class in both Yes, because it is it is a, a factor in both. Yeah. So what were you thinking about class? Um, in? And I do want to point out that Debrett's is referenced in both books. Yes, that's the peerage, right? That's the book yes. that lists who's who among the, the so, so gentility and nobility. So Maityard checks De Brett to check up on uh, Dearth... Uh, Deeth Breeden. Deeth yes, Breeden. She, she's begun to suspect that he is Lord Peter Whimsey. Yes. And she goes and looks him up and sees that his full name is Peter Deeth Breeden Whimsey. And she's like, aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How handy before the internet to just have a book where you could look up famous people and facts about them. Yeah. Okay. And, and then there's a reference with uh, Shrines of Gaiety where Nellie Coker hopes that her, of her, her children, her offspring, she thinks at least Betty and Shirley might show up. They might climb the ladder. They might marry well and move and up in society, Move right? up in what she, they, what she calls the Debrett's ladder. Mmm, very interesting. Yeah, because you could marry into that, you know. Yes. Yeah. And work, and so they are the ones that she's really focused on to get herself. And of course, she she has an ancestor, a grandfather, her father, I think. Mm. Uh, her father came from a certain branch of nobility in Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's where the family money was. Right. And her father, of course, lost it all with gra- gambling, mm-hmm. and so there's this element where she knows enough about the good the right sort of people that she can create an escape for them in in particular at the crystal cup where the right sort of people can go there and have a good time Mm, and she will promise to protect their privacy right and they they can still enjoy because she is she can be a guardian of their secrets and has is like the butler who greets them at the door Mm -hmm. uh, the former butler who knows everybody's secrets and therefore promises to protect your secrets if you protect my secrets. Yes, you know, it's, yeah. it's a transactional protection, mm-hmm. right? But this is, uh, this is with the knowledge that she can never return to that class. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah, she's not, that's not accessible to her. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think both novels are really concerned with class, and I think if you write anything about English society at this time, you have to be. So it's a contention of mine, not just with relation to these novels, but to others, that contemporary historical fiction writers, when they're writing about a period in the past, do not get the nuances of class no. as well as people writing in that time. I no matter totally. how hard you try, you miss something. My classic example of this is um, the novel North and South by, I think it's Elizabeth Gaskell, where she has a character who is, uh, I think she's the daughter of, is she the daughter of a clergyman or something like that? Anyway, she's at a certain level in society. She has to move from the country to the town uh, in the north of England. And she is really perturbed and she's a lovely um apparently sympathetic she's the main character you're supposed to like and invest in this girl she's a good person and she makes the comment that she doesn't know who she'll associate in town with in town because there'll be a lot of awful shoppy people 
In other words, of the class of people who own shops. Yes. And that, to me, was like, I don't think any contemporary writer could have summed up or even gotten so briefly and devastatingly these minuscule class divisions by which the daughter of a clergyman, I can't remember, but something like that, would look down on somebody who owned a shop because they, you know, we Mm -hmm. can't see the difference, but they could. Mm -hmm. And the same in Murder Must Advertise. Like, you Mm -hmm. know that the people who are having the parties and, and... using the cocaine and everything are fabulously and ridiculously rich as is Lord Peter himself but within the world of the advertising agency which just seems like a bunch of middle class people working at the same job there's massive divisiveness between the people who went to Oxford and Cambridge and the people who didn't get a university education and even though they are all doing the same job I don't know whether they're getting the same pay or not but there is real class division and resentment within that company and and the treatment of each other. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, very subtle. Uh, you know this discussion, not just about your your secondary education, but your uh, which whether you went to the right school. Right schools. Yes, oh, like went to Eton one, or Harrow or whatever. You know, yes. this young man. One one man s- claims to have gone to a public school. But no, that's not that's not Eaton or her. Yeah, it doesn't count as one of the real public schools. Yeah. Oh, it's so petty and it's so uh, fine grained that it's. I think it's really hard for someone at our historical distance to see those differences. But Dorothy Sayers, of course, lived that. You know, and and she really takes it apart in the cricket game. Yes, and yes. the choice of who gets to play in this cricket game really comes down to class. It does, yes. Right? And this is a this is a big climactic scene of the novel where there's a what's supposed to be a fun company day out uh, playing yes. cricket against another another uh, office and it turns into this absolute hotbed of resentments and and uh, jealousies and yeah and so much of it and, is around and class. And of course this is this is the thing where true nobility cannot hide itself. Yes, yeah, because right. that's where Lord Peter is discovered. And of course, true nobility and also true talent, because he was a champion cricket player at university. But also true competitiveness. Yes, yeah, he can't. He tries to like damp it down and play less well so he doesn't stand out. But when it's at the the final crucial moment of the game, he bowls like the lo- great Lord Peter Whimsey and everybody in the stands who's a cricket fan is like, that's Lord Peter Whimsey because yeah. we've seen him do that before. Yeah. 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 So Especially the, the boring old codger yes. who's been to every cricket match he's yes. ever seen. So he and remember seeing this back in 1914. Yes, you know. yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I do think the world of class is so well done in in, in both novels, but it feels more authentic to me in the in the book that is original, just because it's weirder. It's things you wouldn't expect. Like I wouldn't expect this jealousy and rivalry between middle range advertising executives over who went to which school. But that's that's what makes it feel so authentic to me is that yeah, people really do have these kind of petty little class jealousies. Now I'm trying to think about Kate Atkinson's book, like Time After Time. It's- does she does she deal with class in in that novel? I don't think she does. She does talk about some you know upper middle class professionals. Yeah. In British society, I don't in think her it's Jason as, Brody's. Yeah, I don't think in in the historicals in 
life after life and a god in ruins, I don't think it's as big as an obsession. No. As class is. Because I I often compare her mentally to Rumor Garden when she Mm. writes, you know, about these, you know, people living in these big houses and stuff. Yes. But she doesn't do class like Rumored God did. No. And again, Rumor yeah. God was closer to the time that again. she's writing about. Yeah. yeah. So she's she's writing about a world she knows. Now, Buddy, who wrote about Is the she? little girl who spins a tale. Atonement. Atonement. Yes. Is that Ian McEwen? I was getting Ian yes, McEwen and Ian Rankin right? mixed up, but it is Ian I McEwen. I think it's Ian yeah. McEwen. Yes, Atonement, yeah. Atonement is a contemporary novel. Yeah, that is a contemporary, really contemporary writer doing really historical. really nails class. Yes, I think he does that really well. You know? And I think some, yeah. some contemporary writers do you know, yeah. when they're writing historical fiction better than others. But I do think there are nuances that you get yeah. in writing in the time that you miss. And I don't think this one, uh, Kate Atkinson, really, I, although she has references yeah. to it, it, it really does not figure very much. There are places like, where you get it, and I think, and to me, the most interesting subplot in Shrines of Gaiety is Frida and Florence. Yeah, and wonderful guests. Again, characters. you know, it's class very much there because the stratum of society that they come from and the attempt to try to get into the theater mm-hmm. uh, or even try to be sh- chorus girls in a show and they just keep getting... Well, Frida is the one who has the ambition. Florence is just going along in her wake. Um, but they just get keep, keep knocked down lower and lower and lower until essentially they're being recruited to be sex workers. Yes. And there's this whole sense which the police officer Frobisher is so keenly aware of that there is a class of young women that are viewed as disposable. Yes. That, you know, they, they could be sex workers, they could be chorus girls in, in the theater, they could be cocktail waitresses or whatever, but their bodies will show up dead and ultimately, apart from their families who might not even know, nobody will care. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to make a big deal about these women. And uh, that's what I, I really, I liked Frobisher in Shrine, yes. Shrines of Gaiety. Uh, he's problematic, but everybody's problematic. <laughs> it's a complex book. But I liked the fact that he was concerned about these girls that no one else was concerned about. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, and the other thing you were saying, which I think, again, is interesting from that inside view of the time, mm-hmm. is the things Dorothy Sayers has to say about advertising. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a backdrop and a setting, and it's very well done. But it also has some really interesting comments from somebody who works so in these, the advertising industry. These co- we're, we're embedded in a copywriting corner. So mm-hmm. these are people who love to play with words. Yes, yeah. And that a wordplay dominates. They have that kind of witty repertoire, which and can you know use the slang and and words, and they just like playing around. Mm-hmm. In fact. Uh, Lord Peter Wimsey thinks that it kind of reminds him of his time in Oxford. Yes, you know? yeah. That there's you know, people hanging around and not really appearing to be doing much work. Yeah. And then moments of feverish work. You yes, know? yeah. And and it is a time when uh, there was a lot more copy in advertising. Yes, yeah. They're writing these big chunks of prose for these ads, you know, uh, and, and yeah. having debates about, well, is this reference too highbrow? Will people get it? Is this reference too risque? Well, it's not, but then when you pair it with this illustration it becomes very risque and the this is the where the class difference and the education difference yes. makes a difference like the oxford crowd keep wanting to ma- make illiterate literary references yes, and yeah. greek references yes yeah one of the copywriters i think it's ingram yeah maybe. Um, point points out that his job really is to create a need or want yes and to point out the 
a person's deficiencies. Yes, yeah. And that is so telling and so true. It absolutely is. She's absolutely devastating about the business of advertising. Yeah. That it is about make, making people want things they don't need, and it is about make, making people feel that their lives are lacking so they will need to buy stuff. And nothing has changed 100 years later. Like, there's less copy in the ads, but it's still the same this principle. Is, this yeah. is the early days of advertising mm-hmm. in the 1920s. But yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. And what I think is interesting is that the whole plot of the mystery that Lord Peter ends up solving is people who are importing cocaine and he is determined to help Parker put a stop to it because it's killing people. It's, yeah. you know, it's a terrible social evil. Meanwhile, his great coup at when he actually gets involved in the advertising business is coming up with what had to be an early forerunner of like the points reward schemes that everyone has now for a brand of cigarettes. And they literally say in conversation, you know, there aren't enough women smoking. We need to get more women smoking. We need to get children, you know, committed to the brand so they'll start smoking when they're old enough. That this all, you know, and I don't know, I never know how aware people in the 1920s were of the dangers of smoking because Dorothy Sayers, like everyone in that time period, was you know, smoked herself. But she does mention, you know, isn't there a saturation point where the whole country drops dead of nicotine poisoning if we sell enough of this stuff? So they must have had some sense that at least in large quantities, smoking wasn't good for you. And Sayers herself, do you know what Sayers' big coup as an advertiser was? The one thing that, that, that is still an ad today that she developed while she was working in advertising was for Guinness, the beer. The, the slogan, Guinness is good for you. That really? was that was an ad campaign that Dorothy Sayers worked on apparently. So again, she's someone who made part of her living selling alcohol, has her character Lord Peter pushing more and more smoking on the British public. And I think there's a very intentional comment there comparing the advertising business to the drug smuggling business that yeah what we're selling you is not necessarily good for you uh and you don't really need it but we need to sell it because we need to make it we you know our our uh the companies we're advertising for need to make a profit so that the advertising business can make a profit so i thought that was to me that's one of the most interesting things about this book yeah. Is, is that commentary on advertising and, and how it is maybe not as obvious a social ill as drug smuggling, but she doesn't portray it as a good thing. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah she doesn't. Um, she is exposing that. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, Maitland character, who's modeled after her, mm. does actually solve the mystery. Yes. But doesn't do anything about That's it. That's right. She figures it out. Maybe even before Lord Peter does, or at about the same yes. time. Yeah. And says to herself that she basically she said, describes herself as just too self-indulgent. Yes. She's not going to get out there and solve mysteries because she is basically yeah interested in self-preservation, which again brings me back to shrines of gay of gaiety to. Uh, Gwen, Gwendolyn? Yes, Gwendolyn yeah. Kelly. Yeah, who is, as you said, is an unintentional detective, a woman who gets uh, basically drawn in by curiosity. She, yeah. she, she volunteers. Yeah, yeah. So we think she's going to be a citizen detective. She's mm-hmm. going to solve this mystery and return these girls to yes, yeah. their parents, or at least Florence, in, in her opinion. But um, And she's a better detective than the police officer, yes, yes, yeah, right. You know, like she actually goes into the dance school Mm -hmm. and and talks to the little girls, yes, yeah, and gets great information. She does better investigating than the police. And and then when uh, the madame who has kicked her out of her office and says she has never heard of these girls, when she is gone, on the advice of one of the little girls, 
she goes in and finds the address of the two girls. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah. you know, it going through the files. So she she had she discovers this place, you know, mm -hmm. and she's and at one point John Frobisher says, "You are a better detective than me." Mm -hmm. But at another point, he realizes that she, it's just a lark for her. Yes, yeah. And it really is. Mm -hmm. There's a moment of sobriety. I think he takes her to see a body. Mm, I think so, yeah. Right? And, uh, and, and it's like this moment of sobriety. And then she gets caught up in the idea of play acting and infiltrating and being the manager mm -hmm. of Nellie Coker's uh, uh, The Crystal Cup. Yes, yeah. And... She never really does find out anything no, more about the girls. No, she doesn't solve the mystery. It's interesting because, again, in a parallel, it's a, and I don't think it comes out as much in Murder Must Advertise, but it is a recurring theme in the Lord Peter Whimsey novels that he is keenly aware that he's doing this because he finds it fun. Yes. And do I have any right in meddling in people's lives and, you know, digging up crimes which might only lead to more deaths, which he almost always does. He investigates and it leads to more people dying uh, when I'm just doing it for my own curiosity. But at least Lord Peter gets results. Yes. Gwen is doing it for her own curiosity and she gets totally sidetracked and doesn't get results. This is one of the things I love about Kate Atkinson, though, mm -hmm. is... is um, She's, and yet at the same time, in terms of mystery writing, mm -hmm. she doesn't cheat. No. Okay? At one point, uh, she, the, write, the reader receives all the clues. Yes, yeah. There is no point at which we can't find the missing girl. So we have, we have been given all the clues to find out who has abducted the missing girl and where the missing girl is. Okay, we're going to need to come back to that after the spoiler warning, because so, I have questions so, about that. Okay. But you say she lays everything out that she we need to She lays everything know. out. But she doesn't have one person, uh, one detective, who solves it. Yeah, yeah. And that's true of her Jason Brody mysteries, too. That's true, That yeah. we, sometimes Jason Brody leaves loose ends, mm -hmm. but we know. Yeah, I think Kate Atkinson yeah. is much more realistic and morally ambiguous than the classic mystery novel in which the detective solves everything and good is rewarded and evil is punished. Exactly. It's not that simple yeah. in this or in any of her novels. And this is, this is, I think, why I keep returning to her, is despite, mm. as I said at the beginning of the program, my wanting to have justice. You do read a lot of the classics, mm -hmm. It gets boring. It does, because you know the detective's always going to solve it. And in the she end. is such a wonderful writer and wordsmith and multiple points of view. Yes, yeah. She has teenage girl voices she does so well. Mm -hmm. Like Freda's internal monologue, monologues yeah. are wonderful. And every time she switches a limited point of view to another point of view, and she mm -hmm. can do it, in one chapter, usually in Shrines of Gaiety, uh, and unusually for Kate Atkinson, each chapter is designated to a single point of view. But there are a few chapters where she jumps point of mm -hmm. view yeah. throughout it. And, and the minute you're in the other point of view, even though they leave a gap, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in, in the spacing, but you right away you know you're in, who's whose head you're in. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? She does those voices so well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so that's you know her writing is is very strong. Her ability to not cheat as a mystery writer, mm. and that cheating is if you solve the mystery through clues 
that you haven't planted that the early early reader couldn't find for yeah. the reader. Okay. Now, this interestingly enough, yeah. among the golden age detectives was something Dorothy Sayers was very adamant about too. You had to give the reader all the clues so that if they were paying attention, they could solve the mystery yes. too, or at least they could look back afterwards and say, "Oh, it was there." there it was. So you and can't... I did do that with okay. her. So I think this yes. is a good time to do a spoiler break and talk about the endings of both novels okay. and say that if you've enjoyed this conversation and you want to read either of these novels and don't want to be spoiled for the ending, you can stop listening here and have enjoyed the last 40 minutes. Uh, but if you don't mind hearing the hearing us talk about the endings, that's what we're going to talk about for the last part of the conversation. Okay. So did you solve the mystery in uh, Murder Must Advertise? Did you know who had uh, I who had killed the I was pretty sure as it started moving. Then I have to say about Dorothy Sayers, she throws a lot of characters at you. She does. And this is one where even though I love her work and I've read this book so many times, most of the people in this advertising agency, I cannot tell apart from one another. Well, this is just a lot it, of names, a lot of characters. Names, and yeah. There are a hundred people working in, yes, in this yeah. advertising agency. And, and, and we tell meet you. a lot of them. And you meet a lot of them. And, and, you know, we're at this staff party, which we've been told is randomly chosen another new 20 people. But I started realizing, okay, these are all circling this one man who was the man who went to not quite the not right, quite the right school. school. Yeah. And that's Tallboy, right? Yes, Mr. Tallboy. right. Yeah. And, and then the, and, and he seems to be having fights with a lot of different people, mm-hmm. including the victim. Mm-hmm. And, and just that, that this, it was actually the, the, the class fight that he was, he was even yeah. more classist than the men who had gone to the right schools. Yes, were, yeah. He has you know, more resentment. Yeah. And more resentment. And that he was beginning to focus uh, on uh, death breeding, right? The Lord P- Peter Whimsey yeah. person. So I started to really focus on that, and I thought there was a period when I thought it might be Maitland, uh-huh. uh, Mayard, rather, mm-hmm. the female copy editor, but then I thought, yeah, no, it's it's going to be this guy. So I was not surprised when he's confession turns out to be up. the murder. The other, I think, yeah. the other giveaway with Tallboy, I didn't solve it the first time I read it. I almost never do with mysteries. I miss the clues, and then after I go, oh yeah. The other, I think, giveaway with Tallboy is he is a character who keeps coming up over and over and over again. Yes. But we never get his point of view. No. We never know what he's thinking. So it's yes. always other people seeing and responding to him. So the solution of this is basically Tallboy because. He doesn't make enough money, and his wife and a baby and a mistress on the side gets into this racket where he is not directly involved in the drug drug smuggling, but he is passing information to people um, about a code that the drug smugglers use to know where to pick up the drugs and where to distribute them that is linked to a certain ad that the company publishes every week. He knows what the headline is going to be. He informs somebody. They inform somebody else. The drugs get picked up. The, the victim, the guy who falls down the stairs, Victor Dean, finds out about this and he starts blackmailing Tallboy. And Tallboy eventually kills him by, is it, he, he, it's a catapult, right? He hits him from up above, up above with a catapult in the head, which causes him to fall down the stairs and he dies. Seems a very inefficient way of killing somebody because, you know, if you miss, 
he's going to know you're out to get him. But that's often, I just often find with mystery novels, the murder is so unnecessarily convoluted yes. when there would be easier ways to get yes. rid of someone. But I yeah. always think the most, the best example is the body in the library by Agatha Christie where you, you know, kill the person in another place, change their clothes, yes. and you bring them into the library. It's like, yes, yeah, yeah, a murderer is oh, going to do that. All the Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Remsen novels are full of these overly convoluted murderers who yes, did these ridiculous yes. things. By that standard, actually, Tallboy just, just binging Dean in the head with a catapult is probably not as bad, as not as elaborate <laughs> as some of them, uh, because he does manage to make it look like an accident. And he, but he does have to get him in the head at the precise time that he's going down the the iron staircase, yes, as yeah, they call yeah. it, the circular staircase. Yes, yeah. Yes. So, um, so it is very, it's a very convoluted murder. Um, and Lord Peter figures it out. And the thing I find interesting about, you mentioned at the beginning about how justice is served, mm-hmm. is that Lord Peter does not expose him mm-hmm. or turn him in. This is really typical of the Lord Peter novel, Lord Peter Whimsy novels. A lot of the criminals that he catches do not see justice in the traditional sense, maybe in the cosmic sense. Mm-hmm. Because what Tallboy basically says is, you know, I can't bear for this to come out. My wife will, will be devastated. My family will be ruined. Uh, it'd be better if I killed myself. And Lord Peter is like, well, there's another way out. Because, of course, the, the, the criminal drug gang is watching all of, all of this unfold. And Lord Peter essentially says to him, if you go out of here, there's a guy in the street who's going to kill you. So it's yes. better if you just go out and let yourself be killed. People will think it was a random murder. Your family will grieve, but at least their name, their honor, won't be tarnished. So what did you and think of So the, I, Actually, I thought that was very much like a Jason Brody kind of solution. Mm, yeah. Because that's Jason Brody is an ex-cop. You know, in one incident, he lets the victim kill. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. kill their, their yeah, the, the, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And Jason Brody just, you know, covers the evidence and walks away. Yes, yeah. And I think there's, oh yeah, there's a couple of those in the Lord Peter Whimsy ones. There's one where he um, essentially tells, he he has a conversation with the criminal like he does with Tallboy, but then he encourages the guy to shoot himself and says, sit Mm -hmm. down here, write a confession so everyone will know that this other person accused didn't do it, so their name is cleared, and then I'll leave you alone in the library with your gun for a few minutes, and I think you'll take the gentlemanly way out. Yes, yes. And again, that's very classist, too. It's that it a certain is, sta- you know, status of criminal you know, is going to be allowed we to... Won't, we won't submit you to the indignities. Yes, of a trial. trial. But um, I do want to take a little tangent here to talk about police procedurals. Oh, in yes, both of these. yes. Okay? Because, like, John Frobisher mm-hmm. and Kate Atkinson, the contemporary writer, yeah. spends an inordinate, and the other policemen think, completely bizarre amount of time looking at bodies. Yes, yeah. And they don't really know why he needs to look at bodies yes, so much. Yeah. And in fact, it is true that he kind of looks at them the way you would go to see a waxworks museum. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a little speculation and curiosity and just casually will pick up the things like, like you know, that are associated with this body and put them in his pocket. Like yes, the, yeah. Uh, the crucifix and... Yeah, and, no sense you know. that, like, the crime scene needs to be kept uncontaminated. Or right, anything. nothing like that, you know. Uh, but she needs to have him see the bodies. And, and mm-hmm. of course, the other policemen don't understand this, and they keep moving the bodies yes, from one yeah, morgue yeah. to another, and he's on this wild goose chase. Uh, in Murder Must Advertise, his brother-in-law... Parker, it, yeah. Parker yeah. is a policeman 
who is very, very focused on trying to break this drug ring, mm -hmm. but there are bodies piling up all mm -hmm. over London. Yes. And yes. he is uh, completely unconcerned with checking them out or going to see them. Yeah. And his second, his deputy, has to go and show up at many of these locations. Mm -hmm. But yeah. he, he, no, this is not on his job list. It's interesting because, yeah, there's another um, great historical novel set in the 1920s, Sarah Walters' The Paying Guests, which I love. Oh, yes. Did yes. You, have you read that yes, one? Yes, I have. Which is yes. basically about two women trying to get away with the murder, and you are very much rooting for the murderers. But yes. at one point, like, the person they kill, there's a massive blood stain on the floor. And the police, you know, I think the police come at some point and don't even notice it. And I was just saying, well, CSI 1920s, like how easy to get away with crime. People were not, you know, examining crime scenes in the way we do today. There's no, def of course, no DNA testing, but not even, yeah. But not the even the chief the body. inspector is going to come in to check out the crime scene. Yes. It yeah. seems to be immaterial. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and so Frobisher, you know, the contemporary one yeah. by, by Kate Atkinson, he he crosses paths with, and he has the little girl, and he gives her money. Yes, for, yes you know, he, he does, actually yeah. speaks to Frida, who has just spoken to the evil corrupt cop, mm -hmm. and the corrupt cop has just you know blown her off. Yeah, and she's quite willing to tell you, my my friend is missing. Yeah. But he, instead of asking her who she is, and he just sort of thinks, yes, he's just been looking at this photograph of this same child, yeah. only with makeup. Yeah, and, and he doesn't and, even realize. And he does, and he looks at her and he says, oh, you know, w without makeup, she could look very much like the little girl I was looking at. Imagine. You know, imagine that. <laughs> I mean, know? but he's not a stereotypical stupid cop. No. He's not bumbling or an idiot. He's compassionate. He's compassionate. You know, uh, and he is almost, you know, codependently compassionate. Mm -hmm. he's, he's very attracted to Gwendolyn because she is so full of energy and not mentally ill like his wife is, you yes, know. Which is another whole subplot in this you know, novel. And he, he has a, a hero complex yes, of trying yeah. to save people. But yes, okay, so now the ending of Shrines of Gaiety. Yes. So the ending of Shrines of Gaiety... I remember as being, and it's, I think it's been longer since I've read it than you have, I did a quick review today, but I may miss some points. What I remember is that a lot of the crimes end up being unsolved, at least within the, within the scope of the book. Now, you say that there's enough clues left that we should know what happened to the missing girl. Yeah. I remember getting to this, the end of this book and the end of the Florence story, the girl who goes missing, and Florence is Frida's friend who is... I mean, the nicest way to say she's not she's not very smart. She's no. not all there. She probably is a little developmentally delayed. Uh, she goes along with, with her friend's desire to go to the big city and go on the stage, but she doesn't really have any interest in it. And then one day she just disappears completely. And then she shows up back at home, walks into her parents' house, no explanation for where she's been, no explanation for what's happened to her. And this is the point at which I, as a reader, felt like a complete idiot because I felt like I'm supposed to know what happened to this girl, but I haven't figured it out. So you're going to need to explain it to me. Okay, so Frida says that the cocaine, which Frida doesn't identify as cocaine, but, mm -hmm. but uh, Florence has left this, uh, these, these postcards which have dust in them, right, white, yes, yeah, yeah, white yeah. dust in them, which is clearly dope, yes, cl yeah. cl clearly cocaine. 
and uh, she's been. It's all Florence. Her whole history has this. The sending these postcards. Yes. Which which when they are opened, they have the dust in them. Uh, at that point, when she's opening, when Frida is opening the postcards, she says the dust is like breadcrumbs. Which if I follow them, I'll find out mm-hmm. what really happened to her. And indeed, we are given all the information. The clue is men with cars. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And then you have to go a little further and figure out which car. And I, when Frida finds out, she goes past a, a, a car dealership mm-hmm. and goes in and finds out the name of the car that she spotted. Mm-hmm. And she saw Frida get into the... She, she saw, saw Florence, Florence yeah. get into this car. I will say, I felt I had missed something at the end of and this novel. And I did, too. On the second reread... Ah, see, I never read it through a second time. I okay. On the second reread, I said, that Kate Atkinson... Please, I'm clever. She broke the law. The law of mystery writers. She didn't give us the clue. But... This afternoon, uh-huh. before coming here, I found it. Frida goes into the shop, mm-hmm. and she finds out. Here, let me see. It says right here, "Men with cars." I got written down on the second last page, and uh, the car. She gets the name of this car. It is a Wolseley Open. Torer, mm-hmm. as in going on tours, right? right? And we have determined that it's not the right color because we're we're led to believe that it's Niven's car. Right, Niven has this really Niven expensive car. Being, being one of the sons of of Nellie Coker. Yeah. Okay, who's a really interesting character. Yes, he is. We haven't got enough time to get into Niven here, know, but, but he Niven is a great yeah. character. I love Niven. So when I read it the first time, I thought, oh, it was Niven who picked up Florence. And Niven, who brought Florence to the train station. Mm-hmm. And that's what I believed had happened, because Niven is another character, the uh, Nellie Coker's scullery maid. There's a whole subplot about the 40 oh, yeah. feet thieves. So many subplots. The, women, this, the yeah. women gang, famous women gang in mm-hmm. London. So Phyllis is the, a white sheep of the family. Mm-hmm. And Kate Atkinson describes her using that term and then goes and talks about Niven. Mm-hmm. Niven is the white sheep of his family. Yes. Niven never uses his car for evil. Interesting. He always uses his car for good. Hmm. He gives, when, when Kelling is hit by uh, 40 thieves, mm-hmm. he gives her a lift back to, you know, picks mm-hmm. her up, helps her and gives her a lift back to her boarding house, then goes and pays a 40 thief, one of the 40 thieves, to get the, the purse back. It is not worth the 10 pounds that he pays it for, and he delivers it to her. Right. All the way through, Nellie, he's a disappointment to Nellie right, Coker. Right, because he's although, the white sheep of the family. Although she does turn to him in her hour of need mm-hmm. to help get Edith down when she's had a bad abortion. Yes. So she does rely on him mm-hmm. when she has to. Okay. But he, she knows he always helps on his own terms. Right, right. Right. Which are not trustworthy by her. So it is not Niven. Niven is one of the men with cars. It is not Niven. So it's not Niven who picks up Florence. But on page 25. <gasps> now that's 25. your clues early. Frobisher 
is having an internal monologue in which he's bitching about this Sergeant Maddox right. who works below him, mm-hmm. makes less money than he does, and he's going to go buy, Frobisher is going to go buy his first car, and it's only going to be in Austin. But Maddox is driving this same car. A Wolseley Open Tourer. So it's Maddox who picks up Florence? Or Oaks. Because when when Frida tells Oates, and Oates is having a cigarette, an mm-hmm. illegal cigarette, out in front of the police station, and, and Frida comes up to him and says, my friend Florence is gone, and he pushes her off and run, runs her down. But then he gives her an address and says, go to this lady. She'll give you food. She'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. He gives her an address uh, and... Sure enough, this is the woman who is having parties and entertaining, getting young girls to entertain. Right, right. right. Okay, so this woman is basically operating uh, the sex trade. Yes, yeah. Right? And that's the woman who gets shut down Mm -hmm. when they, when Nellie Coker and Edith get their revenge on Maddox and Oaks. Right. And that business closes down. Florence is smarter than she appears, okay? Mm-hmm. Florence is the one who, who steals her mother's jewels that support them in London. Right, I remember that, yeah. Florence is the one who accesses cocaine and spends all her time doped out. Mm-hmm. Florence gets into this car that is a Woolsey open tour, tour and Edith tells John Frobisher, Maddox and Oaks are sending girls to this woman. Right. So Florence was just like Oates gave this address to Frida. Frida. He did the same thing to Florence. He did so the he same recruits to Florence. her into this. He had recruited sex trafficking her, ring. picked her up, and brought her there. Probably. Mm-hmm. How she got from there home? Florence has a lot more resources. So you think she just? We're just supposed to believe she did it under her own resourcefulness? Because I started. Fell down an internet rabbit hole when I was like reviewing the reviewing yes. the plot of this book without taking the time to read it, yeah. and of course that led me to a board with fan theories and people talking about the book. And some people were saying, "No, Florence is dead. Florence is one of the girls who died." And it's very clear she had the crucifix because yeah. because and and Kate Atkinson does makes an excellent red herring here. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. She 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 provides you just after uh, he finds uh, the the that the girl has a crucifix and wears spectacles. One of the se- yeah. the second body he finds in the in the dead man's hole in that morgue. This is he being Frobisher. She tells us that oh yes, Florence was where used to wear spectacles, and oh yes, she had a crucifix. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is information we didn't have before, and so we are convinced that Florence is dead. That's why we're so shocked when she walks in hale and hearty. Right. But people do believe that because the mother says. She's not the same. Yes, yeah, and that's what somebody was saying. There's a whole point about how so many of these girls are interchangeable. It's actually someone else who looks like Florence, but that doesn't make sense because no. if it was another girl, why would she go to Florence's parents? Like, she how knows, would she even know? She knows where she lives. Yeah. She, she's, she's Florence. But the thing is, she is now a drug-addicted Florence or a Florence who's coming off drugs. Mm. The other thing I'm wondering, and this is I don't know a lot about cocaine, but I, I have enough faith in Katie Atkinson that she's probably done the research, 
is that uh, cocaine enhances your ability and that maybe Florence, maybe like an attention deficit person who needs Adderall. Yeah, like maybe she was actually a little smarter when she was on cocaine and had had the ability to get, maybe, that is interesting. I had not put those pieces together. I was totally shocked when she showed up at the end. And I do think Kate Atkinson leaves a lot of pieces for the reader to fill in. She doesn't tell us, I mean, she does do a flash forward at the end and tells us about what happened to a lot of the characters, but often in very unsatisfying ways. She leaves the plot line between Gwendolyn Kelly and uh, Niven for the reader to yes, fill in. Yes, it's not because there is a there is a a, a, a bit of an implied romance towards the between he, them at the he end. He makes her a proposition yes, and an offer. Yeah, and she says, "And we will leave them there." Yes, but I know, like the rest, when she tells the rest of the stories of everyone else in Nell Co- Coker's family. Yes, she never gets back to mentioning Niven. Yeah, so she never tells. Us what happens to either Niven or Gwen. No. So Except that Gwen supports Frobisher's widow. Because we should mention Frobisher, the nice, compassionate, if a little bit oblivious police officer, gets killed. He is one of the early automobile accident people who gets killed. Yeah. Gwen takes care of his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she pays. for the rest of his and and pays it faithfully, right? Yeah. And this is not you know before auto deposit or anything yeah, like that. But so she she pays for her maintenance in like a rest home or something, right? Yes, yeah, an yeah. uh, uh, upscale sanatorium yeah. for for mentally ill people. Gwendolyn and Niven are people who are have have come to a point where they are making decisions about what they want in their mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, and this is a point that Gwendolyn has had to get to and we kind of travel with her to that Mm -hmm. point and Niven although he's been very good at helping his family and keeping his brother Ramsey from being killed and by his own bad decisions Ramsey ultimately dies as a result of his bad decisions and I think in part because his older brother isn't there keeping an eye out for him anymore because Niven's gone off to live his own life, we presume. In America, raising horses with Gwendolyn. Let's hope so. Somebody should have a satisfying ending in this book because so do. many of the characters don't. Yeah. So I think it's nice to assume that, that Niven and Gwendolyn do. I really loved Niven. Yeah. He's such a complex character. And he really, in, in her books about war, mm-hmm. uh, Kate Atkinson has kind of explored it. But Niven, there's, you know, describing his choice, he, he, Nellie had made sure he went to a very good school. Mm-hmm. So he could have been an officer. Yes. And he thinks it through and he realizes that he is low class enough that if he is an officer, he'll never be the top officer. He'll always be the second. He'll never be what Lord Peter was, who basically walked into the military at the beginning of World War One right. and was immediately, you know, officer But he's material. going to yeah. walk into in the military in World War One, and he's going to be the the the, the petty officer, mm-hmm. and it's the petty officers who get killed off, mm-hmm. and he knows that they've got a real short lifespan in the in the battlefield, so he says, "No, thank you very much. I'm just going to sign up." as a regular foot soldier because he doesn't believe in this war and it's sure enough world war one it's not it's not a credible war it really he is the most ethical person mm. in the whole novel i had completely forgotten that he was and of course he is for a young man of that age in that era of course he's a veteran of world war one yes. as is lord peter whimsey who is scarred by it for life with 
horrific PTSD, which keeps coming up randomly in the novels. As is uh, uh, Gwendolyn Keller. Yes. Because yeah. she is a nurse. Right, yeah. And also, and has been scarred by this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the other interesting thing about novels either written or set in the 1920s, and I think Kate Atkinson really gets this right, that you this is, this is the post-war generation. Yeah. These are the people who had survived the war, and it colored everything about their lives afterwards. And if you write a novel set certainly in England, but, you know, probably in other places, too, in the 1920s, and don't deal with the impact that that's had on your characters. Yeah. And that's a certain amount of excuse about the Roaring Twenties. Yes, yeah. But it's this frivolous, we've been serious long enough, let's just have fun. Even the the really dissolute, awful guy in Murder Must Advertise who's importing and and selling the drugs is Major Todd Milligan, which I assume is his rank from from the war, so probably also you know a young yeah. a young war veteran uh, so again I think that really adds to the interesting moral grayness and yeah Niven is a great character she should write another book just about Niven oh, which yeah. she's well capable of I mean she wrote Life After Life and then she wrote A God in Ruins about yes. one character from mm-hmm. that book who then got his own book so yeah. I think we could hold out hope for the future adventures of Niven and Gwendolyn I think we can I think Frida's after story is kind of sad yeah she what is she she ends up owning a pub or something yeah she never goes home and back to her old life but she also never gets on the stage like she's someone who tries even at the age of whatever she is like 14 or something to try to take control of her life yes but just she has so many strikes against her as a woman as a lower class poor person like she can she literally cannot achieve her dreams so this is where i think uh kate atkinson is very realistic about the class difference between gwendolyn kelly and Frida, yes, you know Frida. You're right. She she has a relatively good life mm-hmm. in that she does have control of herself. Frida came out of her her life with a careless and emotionally abusive and neglectful, really ne- more neglectful than the mm-hmm. abusive mother. But she was coddled and protected by these the, these two people who she went around and modeled knitwear mm-hmm. with. And so in many ways, she's actually more sheltered than Florence is. Mm, that's true, yeah. And Florence, who went to a convent school, turns out to be the one who is all the things that Florence's mother accuses Frida of. That's true. Florence is the thief. Florence is the liar. And Florence is the drug abu- drug abused And probably the sex worker. And probably that's what happened to the sex her. worker, yeah. Interesting. That is, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, another thing that Kate Atkinson is pointing out, and that is that Nellie Coker is also has seized her life and is running things her way. Mm-hmm. And now Nellie has grown a conscience in prison, and the conscience is in the form of Maud, the first woman who died. Mm, yes, she's you haunted know? by her. And yeah. she's haunted by Maud because she had these men dispose of her body, but she also wonders maybe Maud wasn't even dead. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. She actually, and this is a, there's a point where Gwendolyn Kelling, working for Nellie Coker as a manager for one of her clubs, clubs yeah. says uh, practically, God bless Nellie Coker, mm. recognizing that she gives a safe haven to these girls mm. who are on the street. They come in, they get paid very well mm-hmm. compared to anything these girls can do outside. 
and then they make money and tips if they go if they choose to do sex work it's their choice she's right. not, Nellie Coker is not a madam mm-hmm. she's not running a brothel the girls can choose whether they want to go with a client or not right but they make a lot of money on tips mm-hmm. in the bar yeah and then if they go afterwards and want to do sex work that's their choice. So again, I think it's that kind of moral ambiguity that you yes. get so much of in Kate Atkinson that yeah. you know that that Nellie Coker is this crime boss, right? But she is also there's a morality to her, and yes. yeah, and you can see her as there's no real heroes or villains in this story, and there's no. There's no, uh, there's none of that satisfying mystery ending where the bad guys get punished and the good guys get rewarded. And I think, you know, you, I think that's much more. I mean, there are still contemporary mystery writers who are writing in that golden age style where it is very typical. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think you also get a lot of writers like Kate Atkinson in the mystery and crime genre yeah. who are really exploring those ambiguities and those gray areas a lot more. Yeah. You know, and what if what if the criminal doesn't actually get punished in a satisfying way? What if they get away with it? What if the person we thought was the criminal is not even the worst person? You know. Yeah. And what if the real problem are these corrupt cops? Yes, yes. Yeah. You know? yeah. What if the real problem is, is systemic rather than yeah. individual crime? Yeah. Uh, and I don't, while I don't think, you know, as Sayers doesn't get to that point as a writer writing in the golden age, I do think she explores some interesting ambiguities. And I think, I think Tallboy's ending is really interesting to me because he is the murderer. He did kill Victor Dean. He also was, although somewhat unwittingly, definitely contributing to the drug trade. And yet he is also a victim. He is a victim of blackmail, which I don't know if it comes up in this book, but Lord Peter really hates blackmailers. It's a plot point in several of the novels that somebody is being blackmailed, and no matter what they've done, and it's often quite bad, Lord Peter always has a lot of sympathy. He says at one point, I, th- I think they're the most despicable criminal, people who blackmail others. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, I think he says, it can't be in this book because you would remember it. It might be in Busman's Honeymoon. But I think he says, you know, somebody who kills someone does it and it's over all at once. If you hit a guy, it's over when you hit him. But if you, a blackmailer will bleed his victim for, for months and years and always hold this over him. I, I guess blackmailing must have been a much more common crime in those days. Well, it's, I think it's harder in a, in a society that doesn't have a lot of class, mm. you know. Yes, yeah. You know, we don't, people, because the shame of, the, the way blackmail works is the shame of being exposed. Right. And I don't think people today have that level of shame around being exposed that, that people had in the 1920s in this very, yeah, class conscious and reputation conscious culture. So it's probably harder to blackmail people than people nowadays. I yes. mean, I'm not going to try and find out because Lord Peter would disapprove of me. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, he has, he despises what Talboy did to Dean, but he also has a lot of sympathy for Talboy because you know this guy's in a in a terrible situation victor dean is a low life yes yeah right yeah victor you know. dean's a little scumbag a scumbag i have one more question for you we've established that we both love kate atkinson i have been a lifelong lover of dorothy l sayers and this is the first of hers that you've read would you read another just because yeah i mean i did go back and 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 went did some internet background yes. on dorothy sayers and stuff and she is i could see celebrated as a queen of the mystery, the novel, mystery yeah. novel and so yeah I, I feel like I should give it another shot mm-hmm. you know like this was a, a tougher slog it, I wasn't immediately attracted to it it is like I said it's yeah. a weird one to jump into the yeah. series with so I, so I think I'd like to go back to book one and get to know uh, Lord Peter Wimsey yeah. a bit more and also just you know like I had a lot of respect
respect for Dorothy Sayers mm. because there's some of the writing is actually quite experimental. Oh yes, she yeah. does do a little bit of a multiple point of view yeah. thing. Yeah, and when she describes the uh, the party, mm-hmm. there's a really kind of a surrealistic writing thing happening really there. Really is, yeah, and that's why it, mm-hmm. that and the and the the party Ramsey goes to in in Shrines of Grady reminded me above each other this real surrealism and almost dreamlike states. I would not be surprised if Kate Atkinson hadn't read Murder Must Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. either. I think she probably has read that, yeah. So I guess we'll finish on that note. Thank you very much for discussing these two books with me. And thank you for getting me to finally read it, Lord Peter yes. Renzi. I would recommend that you either start at the beginning with Whose Body or that you start with Strong Poison, which is later in the series, but is the one where he meets his eventual love interest, Harriet Vane. And I think that's a great spot in the series to jump in if you don't want to start at the very beginning because the character is well-developed enough by then that he's kind of taken on his personality. But unlike Murder Must Advertise, he is being himself. He's not in disguise pretending to be someone else for the whole book. I might get to know him. Yes, you might get to know him. (laughs) I think to know him is to love him with Lord Peter. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, thanks so much. This has been great. That wraps up my conversation with Jennifer Morgan about Murder Must Advertise by Dorothy L. Sayers and Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson, two similar and yet very different dives into the underworld of London in the 1920s. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you check out one or both of these books. Of course, I hope that you check out uh, the Lord Peter Whimsey novels, which I'm celebrating in this summer's episodes. I'm hoping to do at least one more episode uh, looking at the Sayers Lord Peter Whimsey novels a little later in the year. I will be back next month with another episode, more guests, more books, and more great conversation. I hope you'll tune in again next month, and until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.